Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. If we will, we'll begin tonight's event. My name is Daniel Garland. Uh, for those who don't know, I'm the Associate Director of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Uh, our speaker tonight is the President of Catholic Answers, Christopher Check, writes and lectures on the lives of Catholic heroes and villains and has addressed audiences across the U.S. and in Europe. Christopher Check served for seven years as a field artillery officer in the Marine Corps, after which he served for 19 years as vice president of the Rockford Institute. In 2012, he joined Catholic Answers as director of development, and he was named president in 2015. So please join me in welcoming Christopher Check. Uh, the story that we're going to talk about tonight takes place during the revolution in France. And uh, it's not well known to Americans. And in fact, it's not really well known to Frenchmen. Um, it's, it, it's been suppressed, uh, much like the story of the Cristero War in Mexico. In fact, these stories uh, bear many similarities. Um, but um, I want to call your attention to a couple of things. There's an excellent documentary that's in production right now by a Frenchman uh, who works with EW10 for many years, a man named Daniel Robertin and uh, Jim Morlino has been working with him and Fran Morlino. And I'm pretty sure I put the link up there to the YouTube. Yep. It's, I, I think I see it there. Yeah, yeah. it's up there for everyone. And there, your handout is also up there, Chris. So feel oh, good. free. Okay. So I encourage you to take a look at that. Uh, uh, I, I've seen a rough cut of this picture. It's an excellent documentary. And you should go and, uh, and, and, and watch that. Uh, trailer for this forthcoming documentary about the about the war in the Vendee, and uh, share share it with your friends. Um, uh, there's a handout that, like I say, will help you follow along. This is an unfamiliar tale, and we're going to tell it over the course of two nights. Uh, and tonight, we'll kind of set up some of the background for the conflict, and then on Thursday, we'll talk about the conflict itself and what it means, what Catholics are supposed to think about this. Um, but that handout will help you follow along, or as I like to say, give you hope that the talk is coming to an end. And, uh, uh, and, 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 and there's a couple more things. So if you want an audio recording of the talk, you can get one at the catholic.com website um, that I recorded a little while ago. And we're not so much going to talk maybe in Q&A if it comes up. But um, not so much going to talk about the origins of the French Revolution. Uh, we're talking more about its effects tonight. Um, but I recommend Dr. Carroll's book, from which Sabatino uh, uh, stole the title for this talk, I, The Guillotine and the Cross. It's like Catholic patrimony. So, so uh, that's right. <laughs> it's, it's in the public domain. That's right, exactly. <laughs> 
So I recommend Dr. Carroll's book, the, Dr. Warren Carroll's book, The Guillotine and the Cross, is, a, is an excellent introduction, not just only, not only to this story, um, but, but to understanding some of the facts uh, that, that, that led up to the revolution. The Simon Shama book is pretty good. It's the kind of the standard neoconservative fair. Most of the facts are correct. The interpretation I would, I would uh, quarrel with, but it's, it's pretty good for the facts. But there's two other things that I want to recommend to you. One is this book um, that IHS Press brought out, and I put the link up there to it. I think Angeles Press carries it. It's called The Church of Turning Points in History by Godfrey Kurth, the first rate uh, an historian from the turn of the last century. Uh, and there's a chapter in there, chapter seven, which is called The Church and the Revolution. And if, you just, if you're only gonna read one thing to try to get your imagination around the French Revolution, I would look at the, the uh, church at turning points in history. And then if you wanna go a little bit deeper, um, my old uh, uh, employer, the Rockford Institute, we brought out in English for the very first time, the work of Augustin Cochin, and the link to Chronicles Magazine is there. And this book, Organizing the Revolution, really, Cochin was a first-rate French historian of the revolution and explained very much how the, the revolution was, was, in fact, fomented by, you know, these clubs, these social clubs of middle-class intellectuals. And so I would recommend that to you very much. And then in 2011, the Rockford Institute, we did a whole summer school on the revolution. Claude Poulin spoke at it, Tom Fleming, Jim Patrick, Christopher Bloom from the Augustan Institute, who's a first-rate historian. Um, and you can get those, I think, still, if you go to Chronicles Magazine, and I put the link for that up there as well. I think it's something like 17 lectures in all. In fact, that includes this one that you're going to hear, or a version of it. So those are some good resources that will give you some facts and, and, and some proper interpretation about the revolution and a nice antidote to, you know, what we hear in high school, you know, that the storming of the Bastille was this wonderful moment that ushered in this grand, beautiful age of liberty, equality, and fraternity, when in fact, it, it's the exact opposite. So on the afternoon of September 2nd, 1792, as the toxin rang out and the city's militia mustered to the sound of the cannons, Six hackney coaches made their way through the streets of Paris to the Abbey of Saint-Germain-de-Prés. I apologize, I should, for my French pronunciation. I learned all my French from, from Peter Sellers' movies. Okay, so 12 centuries earlier, Childebert, the son of Clovis, had built this, uh, this abbey to Saint Vincent. Uh, the Spanish deacon from Saragossa who was martyred during the Diocletian persecutions. But now, in a world where sanity and order had given over to lunacy and chaos, the cells of monks had been vilely transformed into prison cells. And now, toward this prison rolled the martyrs of a new age, an age considerably more troubled than that of Diocletian. In the carriages rode Catholic priests. What was their crime? They had refused to swear an oath of loyalty to the civil constitution of the clergy. This law, passed two years prior by the Constituent Assembly of France, claimed to place 
the government of France in authority over the Catholic Church. A revolutionary government whose leaders held forth with so much bombast about liberty, in fact, deliberately sought to deprive the church of her independence. The civil constitution of the clergy, well, did, did many things, but for the purpose of our story, they reduced the number of Episcopal sees in France from 140 to 83. So 83, one for each of the new departments. France was reorganized at the time of the revolution into departments. And these departments were designed to wipe out with the stroke of a pen all the old provinces of France and with them, you know, their histories, their songs, their traditions. The assemblies of each of these new departments, so one diocese per, per department and one assembly per department, the assemblies of these new departments now, because the French government is an authority over the Catholic Church, uh, elected their own bishops and their own parish priests, including uh, Protestants, Jews, atheists. These people all had an equal vote in who the new clergy of, uh, the, of revolutionary France were, and they call this the Constitutional Church. Within less than a year, Pope Pius VI declared he condemned the civil constitution of the clergy, and he said that any priest or bishop who took the oath automatically placed himself in schism. The clergy of France acquitted itself with fervor and courage. In fact, Alexis de Tocqueville uh, would later write, I am not sure whether despite the faults of certain of its members, there was ever a clergy more remarkable than the French clergy at the moment of being engulfed in the revolution. Indeed, something like 118 out of 125 bishops refused to take the oath, and the majority of the priests of France also refused. Many who had taken the oath retracted the oath when Pope Pius condemned the civil constitution. Uh, he con contrasts this, by the way, with uh, the Protestant rebellion in England, where all but one bishop, you know, capitulated right, during the reign of Henry VIII. Uh, so there's an uneasy period of several months, and the two churches, the civil consti the, the, the constitutional church and the true uh, Catholic church, uh, battle for the soul of France. Uh, the, the, the true church in union with Rome, but disdained as, this is an important word, I don't know if it's on the hand or not, refractory by the government and the mobs of the revolution. Bishops who were loyal to Rome fled the country, monastic houses were suppressed, and their members were turned out into the street. And these people were called refractory or non-juring priests, that is, they refused to take the oath. They were subjected to increasingly difficult to endure forms of harassment. They would be barred from preaching, for example, their property was confiscated, they would be evicted from their parishes. And so, much like uh, in the Cristero War, you know, many years later, uh, in Mexico, uh, they had to lead clandestine lives, and they would travel around by 
night and under cover of darkness to bring the sacraments to the faithful. And if they were captured, they faced imprisonment or and uh, 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 arrest and eventually death. So now, in September of 1792, the direction that this war for the soul of the church is going to take becomes very clear. And as these carriages bearing these priests, non-juring priests, are making their way, drawing closer to the Abbey of St. Germain-des-Prés, which has been uh, turned into a prison, a mob is gathering in the streets of Paris. The passions of the Paris mob had been fired by a pamphlet, a widely distributed propaganda pamphlet called The Treason of Louis Capet, right? which claimed that uh, it was exposing a plot that the king was going to assassinate all of the good citizens of Paris on the night of September 2nd. As the first carriage made its way across the Rue Dauphine, the leader of the mob leaps onto the running board of the lead carriage, and he thrusts his sword through the window into the neck of a priest, and he brandishes the blood, the sword is dripping with blood, he brandishes the blood-stained weapon before the horrified crowd, and he yells out, so, this frightens you, cowards, you must learn to love the sight of death. He then slashes at the priest, again, cutting open the face of one, the shoulder of another, and cutting off the hand of a fourth. Other members of the mob quickly followed his example, and they begin to hack away at the priests, who are now completely defenseless because their National Guard escorts have turned on them as well and joined in to the slaughter. So as blood is dripping from the carriages, the horses are plodding towards the gates of Saint-Germain-de-Prés, and then a second mob convenes and they begin to drag these priests out into the street and they begin to pull them to pieces, those who had survived the first assault. At the same time of day, on another part of Paris, there's another mob similarly convening and they descend on the Carmelite convent on the Rue de Vaugirard. You can go visit it today, you should. This is another holy house that had been turned into a prison for priests who are unwilling to sign the civil constitution. So about 150 of these priests are exercising in the convent's walled garden. And up and over the walls of the 10-foot walls come the sans-culottes bearing swords and clubs, and they set upon these defenseless unarmed priests, and they run one through here, and they bash in the skull of another there. But before the slaughter can gather too much momentum, too much steam, the gang's leader yells out in a mocking tone, citoyen, right? Citizens, stop, stop. We must give these priests a fair trial. So they erect a makeshift bench in front of the high altar, 
of the convent's oratory, the convent's chapel, which you can visit to this day. And the members of this self-proclaimed court bring in the priests, two at a time. And to each priest, they put two questions. Have you taken the oath? Will you take the oath? To the man, these faithful sons of the church gave to both questions a firm and clear no. Not one wavered, dragged out into the garden. They received the crown of martyrdom in pairs. Their bodies were cast down into the convent's well. Halfway through these diabolical proceedings, the executioners stopped and they repaired upstairs to the convent's refractory for a leisurely dinner, during which they leaned their swords against the refectory wall. And when, when you go visit the abbey at Saint-Germain-de-Pré, you can see the bloodstains of the martyrs, which are now preserved behind glass. Uh, so you go, go and, and venerate them. Four months after the September mar massacres, on a gray January morning, so January 1793, as his confessor, an Irish priest named Father Henry Edgeworth, cried out, Son of Saint Louis, mount to heaven. King Louis XVI of France lost his life to the guillotine. Cross and crown, the two pillars of the Christian age seemed smashed by the revolution. But to this assault on the church and her clergy and on the throne, a reaction was taking shape. 150 miles south of Paris, peasant farmers, journeyman craftsmen, wool peddlers, vinters were quite literally cutting their plowshares into swords and their spades into spears. With unparalleled bravery, these men, these humble men and women, whom Napoleon in his memoirs described as giants, rose up and waged a war in defense of altar and throne that would become, come to be known as La Grande Guerre du Vendée, the Great War of the Vendée. Although brief, the Grand War of the Vendée would prove to be something altogether new. It was a war in which an entire region of untrained, poorly armed peasants united and fought against and repeatedly defeated regular troops in guerrilla actions in the forest and thickets and hedges of West Central France and in traditional battles on the open plain. Stained by atrocities committed on both sides, to be sure, and appalling reprisals by the revolutionary government of France against the civilian population. The Vendée War was fought with a bitterness and ferocity without precedence in the history of France. The Grand War of the Vendée gave birth to a new era, the era of total war, an era that witnessed the passing of the constraints of limited warfare of the previous hundred years, never again to return to human experience.
The setting of the story uh, then as now is called La Vendée, uh, but then the name was new. So we talked about it, the revolutionary drawing of France into 83 departments, four came into being in the region south of the Loire, between the mouth of the river, some 30 miles. If you look at your map, you can see exactly the area we're talking about in France. And then that little inset on the side there shows you which part of France. So West Central France. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Mike. Um, so four came into being in the region south of the Loire River, between the mouth of the river, some 30 miles west of the Great Port of Nantes, and the town of Chamur, some 100 miles inland. The southern border of this 900 square mile region extended from Le Sable de Lone on the Atlantic coast to Parthenay. Uh, by the way, the main gate of Parthenay today is called the Saint-Jacques Gates or the St. James Gate because it was, it was an important point on uh, the Camino, uh, Santiago Compostela. A region that included portions of the medieval provinces of Anjou, Brittany, and Poitou was now divided into four departments. So, clockwise from the northwest, Loire Inferior, Menetoire de Sèvres, and the largest, La Vendée. So here, let's have a little bit of uh, a point of clarification. Uh, the theater of this war includes all four of these provinces, Loire-Inferieur, Menetoire, Deux-Sèvres, and La Vendée. Uh, but together, all four came to be called the, the Vendée Militaire, or Military Vendée. And so, for simplicity's sake, in the course of this uh, talk, this course of the story, unless we say otherwise, let's, let's use Vendée as shorthand for the full region of all four, for the uh, for the for the for the Vendée Militaire, the topography of the Vendée is varied. In the northwest, it includes salt marshes that were reclaimed from the sea in the 17th century by Dutch engineers. Uh, in the south, the fertile yet treeless plains of Luçon, once covered with thriving monasteries, and in the northwest, uh, hills and valleys covered with Muscadet vines, uh, and also dotted with dairy cattle. The most famous topographical region uh, of, the, of the Vendée is right there in the center. You see what it says, the Bocage, right? And it's a bewildering network of small enclosures surrounded by thick, tall hedges and tree lines dotted with coppice trees and gorse bushes. General Louis-Marie Thoreau, uh, the monster who would eventually command the Republican army uh, in the Vendée, described the region this way. He said, crisscrossed by sunken roads like scars across a landscape. Uh, the great military theory, theorist uh, Antoine-Henri Germany uh, described the Bocage as a labyrinth for everyone but the local inhabitants. And according to one local account, even a lifelong native of the Bocage would get lost if he were more than 10 miles. There were only two paved roads in the region. But the Loire River, 
was a, an important artery of commerce, and, uh, and the Vendée was a prosperous, a usually prosperous region, fertile, that is a varied economy, flax, hemp, textiles, wine, dairy products, grain, garden produce, fish, and of course, uh, uh, wine. Oh, I said wine. The ports of Nantes and La Rochelle were important parts of embarkation for a robust overseas trade, including all the way to the West Indies. And it was not until the wars of the, Re of the revolution interrupted this trade that unemployment in the, in the Vendée had become a problem. So it was an economically prosperous region um, and a, a varied agricultural uh, and textile output. Okay, so most, uh, most contemporary accounts of the Vendée are, are penned by the Republicans and, and the, you know, the bad guys, the enemy, the revolutionaries. Uh, so we've been told that the people of the Bocage were recalcitrant, that they were ignorant. Uh, Victor Hugo gives them a little bit more credit. He describes them this way, right, the author of uh, so many famous French novels. He says, the Vendean is a, is a smuggler, a laborer, a soldier, a shepherd, a goatherd, a bell ringer, a peasant, a spy, an assassin, a sacristan, and a creature of the woods. Memoirs reveal a people perhaps better educated than most of the French peasantry. And this, this condition is due to two things. One, a close association, a close relationship between the Vendée peasant class and the noble class. So the Vendée peasantry were very close with their nobles. They hunted together, they dined together, they drank together. Uh, they celebrated one another's baptisms and wed weddings and uh, important family events. And the other reason the Vendée peasants tend to be better educated than most of the uh, most of the peasant class of France at the time was because the Vendée peasants shared a very close relationship, not only with their noble class, but also with their clergy, who, the, who were, especially the parish priests, who were much loved by their parishioners. And the van and the and the, and the, and the you know the, the curé or the parish priest of a Vendée parish was very much at the center. Parish life was very much at the center of Vendée life. The role of the local curé was beyond dispute. And both Republican accounts of the Vendée War and sympathetic accounts, uh, contemporary and secondary, all testify to the influence of the local parishes in the small villages and regions of the Vendée. Um, even Dr. Charles Tilley, who's, who's got one of the most famous scholarly studies of the Vendée War, and he largely reduces the conflict to uh, one of economics, he admits, between the rural curé and the peasant, there was no rivalry, mistrust, or conflict. True, the tithe was an annoying tax, but it was rarely a matter of the rarely a matter of the cure's tithe. It was the upper clergy that drew complaints. The community's collective business this is very important. The community's collective business was transacted in assembly after Sunday mass, before the portal of Holy Mother Church. So there was certainly some irritation, as we'll discover, on the part of the local people with the hierarchy of the church, but their irritation would be with the bishops, 
who tended to be absent, uh, abbots, sometimes, sometimes who were absent from their monasteries, would rule several monasteries and become quite wealthy. But that the local parish priests lived the same life as the Vendée peasant, and these two were, were very close. So, the local priest attentively supervised the moral behavior of his flock, and his flock demanded of him high standards of devotion and piety. Right? The region of the Bocage, in particular, historians from both sides, sympathetic and hostile accounts of the Vendée War, agree. The region of the Bocage was especially fervent, or if you read the Republican accounts, they say fanatic, right, in their belief and practice of the Catholic faith. So, to what do we attribute this fervor, this unusual fervor, even among France, in the Vendée? So, the one thing for sure, we have to recognize the harmony between rural life, right, and the liturgical calendar, right, which was so much a part of the Christian age, and yet persisted well into the 18th century in the Vendée. There are two other influences, and Dr. Carroll makes a point to talk about them in his book, that bear mention. 80 years before the Vendée War, Saint-Louis-Marie de Montfort had visited the isolated parishes of the Bocage, and he preached charity and devotion to the Blessed Virgin and to her rosary. And three day, excuse me, three decades before the report, whose ghost? Uh, St. Mary Margaret Alacoque called all the people of France to turn their heart to the sacred heart of Jesus. And this devotion took particular hold in the Vendée. All right? Indeed, the sacred heart would become the insignia for the Vendée army. Now, Vendée devotion did not mean that on the eve of the revolution, the peasant class, like peasant class throughout France, did not hope for some correction to the excesses. When, when the revolution, you know, historians point to the convening of the estates general, uh, so the nobility, the clergy, and then the common estate, the, the, the three estates, the convening of this hadn't been convened for 175 years. So the convening of the estates general kind of as as the political event that begins the revolution. So there are abuses in the noble class and there are abuses in the clergy class, and it's important to understand this. Uh, so people in the Vendée themselves hoped for some correction to the excesses of an increasingly centralized political and canonical uh, order or uh, administration. Uh, taxation was very high. And it was due in no small part to what? The American War, which to the, you know, our, what we call our, our war, our American Revolution, more properly we should call our War of Secession, a War of Independence. It really wasn't a revolution, certainly not in the sense of the French Revolution. Um, but nevertheless, the American War was an altogether remote enterprise to the mind of the Vendée farmer. And, and yet he is paying the taxes uh, for this, and they had doubled over the past half century. Uh, the inefficiently run corvée took the farmer from his planting and his harvest, and the decision to replace it with the tax traded one burden for another. 
the cahier de doliens, the listing of the taxations, uh, reported of vineyards that they saw their work crews decimated by militia service that took men from the Vendée to uh, distant, you know, distant service as far away as Canada and other points abroad. What was unusual about the Vendée, however, was that the noble class, remember we talked about the Vendée people and their noble class being very close, closer than a closer relationship than the nobility shared with other members of the French peasant class at the time. The noble class there often intervened on behalf of their peasants with the central administration. And what was more, the wealth gap between the peasant class in the Vendée and the noble class in the main was not nearly so pronounced as it was in other parts of France. So the noble class were uh, really little more than first among peasants. Uh, Hippolytin, the great French historian, described them as, described the Vendée noble class as one of the few remnants of good feudal spirit left in France in 1789. So we have this really unusual place um, with all the great things about medieval feudalism, uh, a great devotion uh, to, to, to the faith, a close relationship to the noble class, and a close relationship between the, the local parish priest and his people, and, 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 and a closeness to the earth that rural life and agricultural life brings, and that brings us closer to the liturgical calendar. So you, you just got this cocktail, if you will, a recipe, better, of uh, devotion and fervor. So far as the church was concerned, Vendée peasants deeply loved a local priest who shared their poverty and often received the wages of an unskilled laborer, or often less. Parishioners and pastors alike resented the wealth of the bishops, of the Episcopal class, a bishop might earn as much as a hundred times what a parish priest would earn. And there were, as I said, there were many abbots who lived in opulence separated from their abbeys. The French historian, in fact, all, you know, all ICC folks should be familiar with the work of Henri Daniel Rowe, R-O-P-S, it looks like ropes, right, or ropes, Henri Daniel Rowe. He describes the average Frenchman's desire to organize to reorganize the church as perfectly reasonable. Now, what none of them desired was the destruction of the church. At the outset of the revolution, nobody proposed this. No one publicly, at least. Within six months of the convening of the States General, May 1789, all church property had been nationalized and put up for sale at bargain prices to the benefit of the bourgeoisie. Eight months later, in July of 1790, the civil constitution of the clergy was passed. Even before the Pope condemned the civil constitution and even before the king's hand was forced to sign it into law, bishops of the Vendée made it very clear to their clergy that they were not to take the oath and they were to remain true to Rome. For just as our Lord has built one pulpit, wrote one bishop of the Vendée region, one altar, one chalice, so there is only one bishop in each church, 
Those not appointed by ecclesiastical and canonical authority are not legitimate ministers of the word of God, nor of his sacraments. Municipal authorities in the Vendée declared that refusing to take the oath was an act of sedition and attempted to set dates by which all clergy were to swear. When these dates arrived, so the, so the, you know, the local government, or often what would be the case, um, uh, government officials would have to be sent from Paris to replace the local governments. And then they would say, okay, by this date, all clergy are going to sign the civil constitution. And when these dates arrived, they would find spontaneous mobs of Vendée peasants uh, bearing their clubs and their pitchforks gathering in the village squares to defend their priests. The National Guard in the region was not at strength sufficient to disperse such demonstrations. And so for another six months, the non-juring clergy, those faithful to Rome, the ones who would not take the oath, continued to serve their flocks in the Vendée, dispensing the sacraments, preaching clear opposition to the civil constitution. Government efforts, that is the government in Paris, to replace non-juring clergy with so-called constitutional priests, largely from outside the region, they had been priests from other parts of France, uh, was not easy. These priests were called entrues, E-N-T-R-U-S, entrues, that is intruders uh, by the faithful. The few priests who did take the oath were ignored or harassed to the point where no one wanted the job. So if you were a priest in the Monday and you took the oath, no one would attend your mass, uh, altar boys would not serve for you, your, the keys to your rectory would be hidden from you, no one would come to you for marriages or for baptisms or funerals, preferring to see these rites uh, done in secret uh, by non-juring clergy. There are a couple of occasions, one in May 1791 in the town of Cholet, National Guard troops would come up and they would threaten people, you know, with gunfire, three bullets to the belly, if they would not attend the mass of the constitutional priest. And they would make a house, the, 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 the National Guardsmen would make house-to-house -house searches for babies who hadn't been baptized yet, and they would force new parents to take them to the constitutional clergy at the point of bayonet. Here you are bringing your baby at the point of bayonet to be baptized by a constitutional priest. When the constitutional priest, Abbe Payeur, was appointed to the parish of Saint-Laurent-du-Plain, he was greeted by a crowd of 4,000 peasants armed with cudgels, and they pelted him with stones and mud. Women and children pursued him everywhere, calling him names. So nobody wanted, in the Vendée, nobody wanted to be a, uh, a constitutional priest. The growing civil unrest notwithstanding, war might have been avoided. In June of 1791, the Constituent Assembly in Paris appointed General Charles-François Dumouriez as the military commander in one of the, in the departments of the Vendée. Dumouriez would later defect and then become a royalist intriguer during the reign of Napoleon. He was a level-headed man. He urged for peace uh, through religious freedom, but he was unsupported by the assembly in Paris, 
so he resigned. The persecution of the church increased, and so also the increased the presence of regular government troops in the region to augment the National Guard. So the National Guard troops there in the Vendee, and now the revolutionary government in Paris is starting to send regular troops uh, into the region. Uh, the, the, the National Guard were particularly odious people. They were called blues by the, uh, by the soldiers of the Vendee, and they really were the worst sort of brigands, as we'll find out. Um, the non-juring priests, so the priests who were faithful to Rome, were informed on by uh, revolutionary patriots. They were arrested, they were confined in Angers and Nantes. Religion was driven underground. Masses were offered at wayside calvaries in the woods, in barn lofts, in basements, and attics, and cellars of private homes. You know, much like the, the story of the Cristeros. Non-juring clergy exhorted their faithful to keep firm hearts. In the tiny parish of Saint-Hilaire du Mortain, the parish priest, a man named Father Peinot, addressed, knowing that he was about to be arrested, addressed his flock after the morning mass. My brothers, he told them, I am going to leave you, but wherever I go, my heart will be with you and I will pray for you. Each Sunday, so long as I am able, I will say mass at this same hour for you. Join with it in your intentions and your prayer. Never assist at the mass of an intruder. Mobs have clashed with national government guards sporadically through 1792, and several lives had been lost on both sides. But events came to the brink of war in August in Brechure, when a contingent of National Guard troops, or Blues, attempted to evict a convent of nuns. They were challenged by a makeshift army of the Vendee faithful, assembled from four surrounding parishes by the mayor, who was a royalist sympathizer, and he refused to sign the eviction order of the nuns and lost his job as a consequence. Bearing pitchforks and clubs, this little Catholic army squared off against the much larger and better armed uh, National Guard force in the open field, shouting, Vive le roi, right? Along with the king, they charged the blues. A hundred of them were slaughtered, 500 were captured and later massacred in cold blood and the National Guardsmen cut off their ears uh, of their corpses and, the, and pinned them to their hats like flowers, like cockades. Surviving peasants were put on trial, and they were offered the opportunity to say, vive la nation, uh, and they responded, vive le roi, long live the king. Napoleon, in his memoirs, would later write of the trial. They died courageously. A long war was to result from the heroism of these brave peasants. For the next several months, the Vendee remained in this state of civil unrest. Leaderless and not coordinated bands of Vendee peasants across the region rose up from time to time 
in defense of the non-juring clergy. These various riots might never have developed into war had it not been for what would be a turning point, not only in the history of the Vendee, but in the history of military warfare, in the history of warfare, in the history of the whole world. The regicide of January 1793, so the execution of the king. And what followed one month later. The convention in Paris declared, they issued a decree to enlist 300,000 men to serve in the French army. And what do we call this event in history? The Levé en masse, the world-changing effects of the Levé en masse are the subject of, a, of another lecture altogether. But as far as the Vendée peasant was concerned, this draft was the final straw. It was the tinder that set the whole region ablaze. The farmer and the artisans of the Vendée viewed the draft, this was a, a national draft of unparalleled scope, the Levé en masse. The farmers and artisans of the Vendée viewed the draft in this way. They call to arms from a government that has suppressed our beloved clergy and killed our king. And now we're being asked to join in the hunt for these priests or to be sent to a foreign land, Canada, America, to die a lonely death far from home and family in the service of the same government. Absolutely not. Further arousing Vendean anger was the fact that the local agents of this regime, municipal authorities, national guardsmen, civil servants, and the like, were under Article 20 of the Levé of the, of the en masse exempt from service. In other words, it was the peasant farmers of west central France who were disproportionately called to arms. And the pace with which the levee was imposed served only to fire more the irascible passions of the Vendée citizens. King was killed in January. By the beginning of March, the text of the, of the levee en masse was in the hands of all of the departmental authorities, all 83 of them, all over uh, France. They had five days from the receipt of the decree to obtain genuine volunteers. Failing that, conscription by lottery. So this is important to understand. The, the, the levé sparked the war, not only because of its offensive nature, which we described, uh, here now I have to go die in a foreign war, I, I'm now gonna serve an army that's gonna round up these priests that I love, right? So the, so the, so the moral offense of the thing, but also because of its schedule. In other words, so many independent uprisings took place on the same day. Why? Because this is the day that the government in Paris said, this is the day the lots are to be drawn. The reaction came very quickly. In fact, Anthony Trollope, 
I think one of his very, very early novels is, is called The Mundane. I recommend it to you. And the opening chapter describes one of these scenes where uh, the, um, uh, the men are being conscripted and then the other men of the village gather around them and prevent the National Guardsmen and the regular troops from, from taking them. The reaction came quickly, beginning as so many good things do, where? In the taverns, right? Across all four military departments, uh, the Vendee, uh, all four departments of the Vendee Militaire, the peasantry assembled to express their outrage with the new law. Why serve a government which denies our religion? Shouted a carpenter from Cholet. And he called on his fellows to swear an oath never to obey the new laws. So it's not difficult for us to imagine hundreds of such meetings taking place in early March of 1793 in all the taverns all across the Vendee. These crowds, these men would be fired by drink. They would disarm the local National Guard garrisons. They burn the municipal records. They would cut down the trees of liberty, right? And they would link arms, like described in the Trollope novel, uh, to frustrate the attempts of the local guard units to carry young men off to service. On days when the lots for service were to be drawn, men showed up in the villages, squares, armed with shotguns, clubs, pitchforks, and wearing the white cockade on their hats. The most famous of these incidents took place on Monday 11, March, in saint Laurent, where one of these newly formed Vendée armies with cries, Vive la prête, so long live the priests, clashed with and routed National Guard troops, seized the city hall, and burned the draft records. In towns across the region, similar violent draft protests exploded. The Vendée peasants, realizing now they had crossed the Rubicon, if you will, now confronted their most pressing need. There was no shortage of tavern table orators capable of giving expression to the growing anger of the Vendée peasants, nor of holy priests to stir the souls of the Vendée peasants, who were now quite literally soldiers of Christ. But what the Vendée army, we can't even call it an army at this point, what they lacked was serious military leadership. And so what did they do? To their various nobles, and remember we talked about these men with their friends, they shared their baptism, they shared their weddings, the men that they hunted and drank with and worshiped alongside. They went to their nobles, the villagers and farmers of the Vendée now turned to their nobles. And the names of these men, and I'm sure they're on the, the outline there, they're unknown even today to much of France, and yet they are extraordinary Christian heroes, uh, unknown to much of France and, and indeed much of the rest of the, of, of, of the Christian West, but they are hallowed to this day in the Vendée. Francois Athanase Charette, right, or Charette for short. Joseph-Louis-Marie Gigot Delby. Artus Marquis de Bonchamp, famous for his military service in India, and famous, by the way, uh, he was not only a great soldier, but he had a massive library. Louis de Sergueil, Marquis de Lecour, and Henri Marquis de Roche Jacquelin, who was affectionately called Monsieur, Monsieur Henri. And the last 
to join the cause, but of the Vandag chiefs, the man most beyond moral reproach. However, how heroic as these men eventually would show themselves in the Vendee War, they were initially reluctant, almost to the man, to lead an armed uprising. Uh, when his former feudal vassals approached Bonchamp, uh, following the action at saint Florent, he made every effort to dissuade them from taking on say, so great a risk as raising an army. Uh, to take on the Republican government of France. But finding them resolute, he agreed to give his utmost and to lead them to victory. There are two Vendean commanders that we must name. Although they were not of the noble class, their leadership is acknowledged and admired by noblemen and commoner alike. Jean-Nicolas Stoufflet, grandson of a German from Swabia, he was a gamekeeper a seasoned soldier, and he was a superb marksman. But the most famous of all of the Vendee leaders, the man under whom peasant and noble alike was united, was the first generalissimo of the Grand Army of the Vendee, Jacques Catalano. He was a traveling peddler of linen and wool. He was well known and well-loved throughout the region for his piety, his gentleness, his intelligence, and his capacity to inspire men's hearts with his speech. Catalano's fortitude and indefatigable drive would fire the hearts of the Vendée faithful as he led them in one of the most inspiring crusades in the history of the church. And I see we're ending exactly on time. So we've set the stage and we will pick up the story of the war on Thursday and what it means to us. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Chris. So you went through the whole civil constitution and the oath and I sort of missed the, the heart of like what they were being what, what that was, could you just very briefly recap that? Sure, the civil, the civil constitution of the clergy was a, um, an edict from the revolutionary government that set the, the revolutionary government of France in authority over the Catholic Church. And, 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 and okay. you know, not unlike Henry VIII declaring himself the head of the church in England, although in this case, much more brutally and much more violently, even than Henry VIII, if, that, if that's imaginable, and much more thoroughgoing in its, in its intentions. I mean, the, the ultimate effect of the civil constitution of the clergy is, is you know, is an, is an attempt to, to, to destroy, to remove the influence of the Catholic Church from, from France. Uh, and, uh, and so you know, the, the revolution just is one of these things that, that, that builds on itself you know, more and more, you've got the crazy ideas of Rousseau and Voltaire and the licentiousness of the age and the, the hyper-individualism, and, and, and then you have the civil constitution of the clergy, you have, you have the, the, the war against the ancien regime, you know, the, the old noble class, the royal class, and you have the convergence of all these things, and it explodes in, in this um, event of the revolution with 
the you know the, the, the people like I said the, the first nation of Europe right the eldest daughter of the church just tearing at her throat really until the other nations of Europe have to intervene but so that's in a, in a nutshell that's what the that's what the civil constitution was to do and throughout France uh, it, it was relatively well received through other parts this is why the story in the Vendée was uh, it, you know it, it's, such, it's such a wonderful one because here we have heroic resistance whereas right. other and it's not so much. Well, I wonder, like, though, you know, if you're an average person, would it be easy for you to kind of, that to slip by your notice, or even a priest, like, to sign that because they just don't maybe understand the potential consequences of what they're... Well, and some probably did, thinking, not, not realizing. I mean, even in England, it really wasn't clear what was happening. We have the, we have the benefit of, of hindsight, looking at the Protestant Rebellion in England, what the total effect of it was. But as it was happening, you know, oh, so the king seems to have some kind of authority over the church now, but we still have the sacraments, we still have, um, we still have bishops ordaining priests, I can still get my confession heard, something like that. Now under Elizabeth, of course, it becomes much worse. But uh, these things, it's, you know, they, they don't happen overnight. So you could see a, a clergyman in France, oh, okay, you know, this is a reform, probably makes some sense. Uh, but then when the Pope, Pope Paul the, or Pius VI declares no, then the bulk of the clergy of France uh, refuses to sign. I really recommend anybody who's listening to, so I mean anybody who's ever in Paris, of course you should go see there on the Rue de Bac, uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, miraculous medal. Yes, St. Catherine Mavaray. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, but also, not far from there is the Rue Vaugirard, V-A-U-G-V-A-U-G-I-R-A-R-D, Rue Vaugirard. And uh, you can go see the, the, the convent of the, of the Carmelites there and see where these, you know, 100 priests or so were, were murdered in, that, in the course of that day during those uh, September massacres. So really a lot of very heroic martyrs during the revolution. And then, of course, you know, what quells the terror? I know I'm getting off topic, but it's, the, it's the, the guillotining of the Carmelites, right? Everybody here should read Song of the Scaffold, if you haven't read Song of the Scaffold. Gertrude, Gertrude von Lefort, I think it is, yeah. And it's a, it's a beautiful little book. You read it in one night. All right, first of all, we have an anonymous viewer saying, where would the underground masses take place? Oh, in people's private homes, mostly, you know, like a rural barn or something like that, or someone's cellar. So, you know, quite literally underground or, or out in the woods, uh, something like that. Okay, great. Another quick one. Was there support from the American colonies for either side? No, no, no. And of course, uh, uh, generally, the American government is, is favorable now, not not till not 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 once the terror begins, but generally the American government is favorable to the to the initial parts of the of the revolution. Okay, we have a question coming in from Noble asking: Did the Vendée non-juring clergy offer parish schooling for the peasants? That's an interesting question. I'm sure. I'm, I, I, yeah, I mean, I can't say for sure, but schools would be very likely part of the parish life, all of life. Uh, swirled around the parishes, so um, I, I, I imagine churches would double as schoolrooms in the rural parts of France. Yeah, we have a few questions that are somewhat similar, asking um, why is this whitewash from glowing uh, love 
from the glowing love academics have for the French Revolution. Another one asking about the French Revolution and um, if religion played as big of a role as, um, and if so, why do historians emphasize this? Why don't they emphasize this more? Yeah, and he, you know, and I, I really recommend this book that I, I recommended at, at the beginning. That the, the church, how do I do that? There, the church at the turning points in history by Godfrey Kurth, and you, I know you can get it from Angeles Press, but I'm sure from from Amazon. And just read that chapter on the revolution and what what the revolution was. It was a celebration of individualism. Uh, you know, it, 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 Rousseau. It, 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 it's. How can I say this? It's like it's like rights on crack cocaine. Rousseau says, uh, just because I imagine something that I desire, then I have a right to it. So this is very much at the philosophy of Rousseau. So you have you have you have an individualism that begins actually before the revolution. It begins where? It begins in the Protestant rebellion with men like Martin Luther and Calvin, right? Both men saying basically, and this is something of a simplification, but basically saying anybody who picks up his Bible, right, and reads it, ostensibly guided by the Holy Spirit, interprets scripture as he sees fits according to his own lights. So, so this individual, these, these notions of individualism are being ushered into the, into the conversation in Christendom, you know, three centuries before. And then you've got guys in England like Hume and uh, John Locke and Adam Smith, who also uh, you know, have a, um, uh, a philosophy very much based on individualism. And then you've got De uh, Descartes and Rousseau and Voltaire. And I mean, Voltaire was, I mean, he, he was a pornographer, essentially. And uh, so, so you, have this, you have this union of license and individualism and individual desire. And then there, there are, to be sure, as I mentioned in the beginning, there are excesses of the centralized government, the centralized government of the nobility, and the centralized government of the clergy as well. There certainly are excesses that are being taken place. But once, you know, these, 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 the ideas of men like Rousseau and Voltaire are, are, are put to the tender, then the thing explodes into this uh, bloodbath of, the, of uh, the reign of terror. Now, why, why, why is it this celebrated? Well, you know, the, 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 or why isn't the story of the Vendée celebrated or known? Well, it's known in the Vendée, and we'll talk about, we'll talk about some more of that next, next on, on Thursday. But the story's been suppressed because the national story of France now is what? It's Bastille Day. You know, it's, it's, that was our, you know, the beginning of the revolution was the beginning of our independence. So they retold the story. And I'll give you, I think on my, Monica, do I have Renal Seychelles on the handout? It looks like Secher. Uh, Recommended reading. I'm not looking at the handout. I really recommend this book to you. Yes. Yeah, it's called The French Genocide. And this book just came out in France, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or fewer, and recently brought into English by uh, Notre Dame Press. And Sachet was, he was harassed and hounded by, you know, the, the, the intelligentsia of, um, of, of Paris and of France when he tries to tell this story. So uh, it's suppressed because it runs contrary to the national myth of France, which is anti-Catholic anti and anti-Christian. And it's something, as we, were, as, as we were talking earlier, because France, of course, is what? She's the eldest daughter of, of Christendom. She's the eldest daughter of the church. Yeah, we must pray for France and for the soul of France.
We have a couple more questions, kind of touching on what you were just mentioning about today, Catholics today in France. Uh, a few questions asking if the nationalization of the churches continues to this day, which you kind of just answered, and is that section of France more Catholic today? I think it is. I've never visited the Vendée, but it still has that tradition of being more Catholic than other parts of France. In the same way, by the way, that the region of western central Mexico, uh, like Jalisco and Guadalajara, and the Aguas Calientes area, all that area um, where the Cristero War took place in 1929, to this day still has a more fervent reputation than other parts of, of Mexico. And in fact, that region of, um, of Mexico sometimes is nicknamed the Mexican Vendée. So these two regions kind of share an identity. And I, I really wish to underscore and emphasize my opinion that uh, fervor, Catholic fervor and rural life and the harmony of rural life in accord with the liturgical calendar, especially like any of our, any of our um, viewers who pray the office, especially on a regular basis, will recognize that the, that the office just follows the harmonies of the season. And um, there was a beautiful essay, in fact, by a Frenchman a couple of a couple of months ago, in the back of you know Magnificat, that uh, missile that comes out, it's a very good publication. And I've forgotten the, the name of the Frenchman who wrote it, but he makes the point in there. He says because um, the scene on the front is this pastoral scene of a husband and wife, and they're pausing and the farm, and you know having a, 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 a sandwich or a piece of cheese or something. And and he's and he and he, and he makes the point in this essay that most of us who are removed from that rural life, from the seasons, from the agricultural rhythms, are de facto one or two steps removed from the Gospels themselves. And it's sort of a, a frightening thing to think about, but so much of our Lord's parables are agricultural parables, right? And, and if you've never been a sower who's going out to sow, right, right, or you've never reaped, or you've never separated wheat from chaff, or you've never trimmed back the vines of a, a, in the vineyard, so many of our Lord's images, and we can think our way through them, we can look at pictures and imagine, read about them, but not having that first-hand knowledge, in a way, kind of removes us from the Gospels uh, to a degree, in sort of a terrifying way. And... Um, and so I think that, that, I mean, you just tend to see more fervor in these areas where you have those, those rhythms of the, of, the, of the agricultural and liturgical calendars kind of uniting with each other. Sorry not to belabor a point, but I think it's important. And, it's, and, and I know I'll upset some of, your, some of our viewers tonight, but I can't help but say it. This is why the American South, in many ways, actually, although it was not Catholic, is the more Catholic region of America. It had that more medieval feel to it. Oh, no, no, I've opened a can of worms there. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on from that quickly, right? <laughs> um, there is a question here that I know you have a link to about this, so I wanted to ask it. I'm asking, do you know of a, if a movie was ever made on this subject? This is from Elda, who says she's really enjoyed it and was wondering if there's a movie. There are actually two. Jim Morlino uh, is a friend of mine, and he... Um, he made a, he runs a thing called Navis Pictures, N-A-V-I-S, and he uses exclusively child actors. And, it, and they're actually 
quite compelling and charming pictures. He made one on um, uh, uh, Bernadette, Subaru, and the uh, apparitions at Lourdes, and he made one on the Vendée. And so if you, if you dig up Navis, N-A-V-I-S, Navis Pictures, and you can get a copy of, of his film that he made on the Vendée. But Jim Orlino has also uh, been cooperating and filming in France with my friend Danielle Roberdin, and I think we have a link to the YouTube video here, and you can watch the trailer, and that hasn't been released yet, but it's an excellent documentary, uh, and they've got some really first-rate minds involved, including that historian, that French historian, well, well, she's Irish, actually, but she's an historian of France, Siobhan, uh, what's her last name? She teaches at Fordham, I can't remember. She wrote a very good book about Joan of Arc, by the way. Um, anyway, uh, so they've got some first-rate people. Renal Sachet is involved. So there's an excellent documentary coming out about this. And when it comes out, spread the word and, and support that work. Wonderful. Sounds good. And that link is posted in our chat, and we'll add that in the resources on the website as well. Um, we have a couple questions coming in about the English um, coming into France and if they instigated any of the resistance to the public, Republic, Republican government, and also um, whether they were more willing to resist in, in, than the English bishops, if the Vendée were more willing to resist than the English bishops. So questions about the English relationship in this whole thing. Well, actually next Thursday, so not tomorrow, but Thursday, we are going to talk, there, there, there is a, 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 an exciting part of this tale of, of international um, espionage, and there, or if you, I don't know if that's the right word, espionage, but anyway, an effort by soldiers in the Vendée and also in uh, Breton, which are just north of, the Vendée, there's a little bit of an uprising there as well. And they make an effort to try to uh, get the government of England involved to come and make a naval relief effort um, of, of, the, uh, of, of the, you know, to, to help the Vendée soldiers out. Um, so I'll just I'll leave you in suspense. But I think the other question about comparing, you know, the reaction in France, the church's reaction in France, the church's reaction in England, to uh, Henry's revolution and then this revolution, like we mentioned at the very beginning, most of the clergy, most of the clergy of France, including most of the bishops, refused to sign the civil constitution. And that's why there's that quote from de Tocqueville that I said, you know, probably the finest clergy in all of Europe at the time. And, it's, and I can't tell you exactly why the clergy in England, uh, maybe they weren't, you know, maybe they didn't see it coming, they weren't as well educated. I, you know, that's a question I can't really answer. Thank you. And I have one more question coming in that we'll ask tonight and the rest we'll send to you. Um, coming in from Traca asking, I know there were several lesser rebellion groups like one in Normandy. Do you know anything about these other groups and if they began under similar conditions? Yeah, yeah, they, they certainly were. This, uh, and the Bretons uh, just north. And there was even some coordination, some efforts to coordinate the, the various groups. Um, I'm not as, as up to speed on those. There's a Balzac novel, I think, on the rising, the, uh, what's it called? It's quite good. I'll have it by next Thursday. <laughs> sure. I know I told you that. That was the last one, but I just saw another really wonderful one coming in on the chat, so I'm going to ask it. Um, from Harold asking, what did the Pope think of the Vendée army, and morally speaking, and would this be acceptable today? Yeah, I definitely think it's morally acceptable. Now, one of the problems with, with you know, with just war theory is um, in these kinds of cases of uprisings, 
uh, first, certainly, certainly, you know, you need you need a declaration by limited by legitimate authority. But the government of, of France, because of its war on the church, similar to the government in Mexico, because of its war in Mexico, loses its loses its the claim to its authority. So, uh, and and here actually the Vendeans, some of them anyway, are attempting to restore the legitimate government of France, that is the, the royal house. So the Pope certainly supported that. Um, the, the question that always runs through my mind when I look at stories about this is something in just war that's not often talked about, but really ought to be, especially nowadays, and that's the requirement for a reasonable expectation of success. And you don't have to have a guarantee of success, but you have to have a reasonable expectation. So, uh, so a fan of, as I am an admirer of the Vendeans, could still look at this and say, you know, this was a hopeless, I, I wouldn't argue that. But someone could say, you know, they, they never had a reasonable expectation of success. I believe that they did, and I think when we tell the story, finish the story on Thursday, I will make that case. But that'd be one of the things where someone who was sympathetic to the story still might say, well, I don't think they meet all the requirements for um, a just war. But you know, my friends, the world is becoming a very, very uh, troubled place to live, and, and um, and there may yet be opportunities like this where uh, we're going to have to, you know, quite literally become soldiers of Christ. And so it's good to know these stories so that we can be prepared. Yes. Thank, thank you very much, Chris. You said you were worried about the webinar, but I think I can speak for all the participants that you did great. It was wonderful. Thank you very much. Oh, and I didn't get to say, send a check to the Institute for Catholic Culture. <laughs> amazing work and, and, and I love I keep calling Ryan to call him Sabatino Father Hezekiah right he's doing amazing work and it's growing and with these webinars and I'm going to be glad to be there in December uh, live talking about Our Lady Guadalupe um, but uh, support the work of this organization and, and I'll tell you this Catholic Answers has many magnificent resources and and but you all are an inspiration to us and we just started here three years ago, and it's growing our parish summer series here in San Diego. And the inspiration for the work that we're doing is uh, is because of the Institute of Catholic Culture on our local lecture series here. And in fact, I'm going to send a couple of my events ladies out to spend a week with the Institute so they can get some hands-on training. So Wonderful. thank you very much. And check and or go online and give. Keep these people in business. They're doing great work. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.